The text for the sermon this evening is Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 through 9, and also some passages from Hebrews 11 that especially concern the events of Genesis 12, 6 through 9. So first we'll read Genesis. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sichem, that is Shechem, unto the plain of Morah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And now in Hebrews chapter 11, in that catalog of saints who by faith uh, did this and did that, we have Hebrews 11 verse 9. By faith he, that is Abraham, sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Then if we scan down, we begin now at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last time that we considered Abram, we considered the call that Abram received from God to leave his homeland, to leave his family and his relatives, and to set out for the unknown and the strange land of Canaan. We noticed last time as well that God called Abram with great promises. These promises of blessing, these promises of a seed, and a blessing to all nations of the earth in the seed of Abram. We saw Abram obey that call by faith, leaving his family, leaving his homeland, and setting out for whatever God had in store for him. And last, we saw the significance of that, namely that this is God realizing his covenant promise that he gave already in Genesis 3.15 of the seed of the woman, the mediator, the seed of the covenant, who would bring salvation to God's covenant people. Now the promises that we read of in chapter 12 and that we considered last time, and now this promise that we will consider in verse 7 of the land of Canaan. Those promises which God gave to Abram right away are really the kernel of all of the promises to Abram that we will see in the chapters following. God is going to come again and again to Abram, promising so many things. You can trace all of those promises to the, the kernel of these promises here in chapter 12. And Abram, and then after Abram, Isaac, and then after Isaac, Jacob, they, pil- they sojourned as pilgrims and strangers in the land of promise by faith in God's promise. With Abram, we have entered upon the patriarchal history, the history of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And some of the characteristic features of that period is this matter of being a pilgrim and a stranger. They had not a square foot of land to call their own in the land of Canaan. They dwelt in tents and in tabernacles, pitching a tent here, taking the tent away, and pitching it somewhere else, walking throughout the land. But not only that, they sojourned by faith. And it's that matter of faith that shines so brightly in the history of Abram and then after him Isaac and Jacob. That childlike confidence in God's promise. No matter what seems to be to the contrary, they believed God and they walked 
and they sojourned as pilgrims and strangers. Now this text here in Genesis, verses 6 through 9, in light of the commentary that Hebrews gives on this passage, is an, is an appropriate text on the occasion of confession of faith. Confession of faith, among other things, is the confession that I do not belong to this world, that I am a pilgrim and a stranger in this world, that my citizenship is not here below, but that my citizenship is in heaven, and that I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's all packed into that public confession of faith, which we heard this evening. And now this history here in Genesis 12 sets before us what it is to be a pilgrim and a stranger in the midst of this world. What it means for you, Dylan, now as you take up publicly your calling as a pilgrim. What life is like in the midst of a hostile world. The antithesis is here. But here as well, and of great significance for all of us who confess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is this matter that we sojourn not relying upon ourselves, but we sojourn by faith in the promise of God. We're a lot more like Abraham than you might think at first. Abram sought a heavenly country. We seek the same heavenly country. Abram walked by faith, so we walk by faith. Abram, the father of us all, as the apostle says in Romans. So let's consider this text under the theme, Abram sojourning by faith in the land of promise. Noticing in the first place that he sojourned as a stranger and as a pilgrim. Noticing in the second place that he sojourned by faith in God's promise. And noticing finally that he sojourned with calling upon the name of the Lord. Not an insignificant detail in these verses. Abram sojourned as a pilgrim and as a stranger. And he confessed that concerning himself. We read in Hebrews 11 that these fathers, they confessed. They made very plain that they were pilgrims and strangers. And that was the case for Abraham as well. In fact, in near the end of his life, in Genesis 23, verse 4, Abraham, who at this point is buying a field and a cave to bury his wife Sarah in, this is what Abram says about himself. I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. I'm a stranger, I'm a pilgrim, I'm a foreigner here in this land of Canaan. Now the fact that, that Abram was a stranger and a pilgrim is evident from verses 6 through 9. Just in that handful of verses, we have Abram going, th going to this place and then going to that place. Pitching his tent here at Shechem, disassembling his tent and traveling to a place between Bethel and Ai and pitching his tent there. Abram lived a pilgrim's life. He had no permanent resting place in the land of Canaan. He was on the move going here and there. Couldn't retire to a home with foundations like you and I have at the end of a long day's work. And the fact that Abram dwelt in a tabernacle or a tent is a further indication that he was a pilgrim and a stranger. Pilgrims have tents. Pilgrims have tabernacles. That very structure was designed to be portable. You would pound some stakes in the ground, raise the roof of the tent, dwell in there for a moment, take the stakes out of the ground, bring the tarps down, whatever it was, and then get on uh, with the move. Whenever you have tent, you have pilgrim. That's the case with Abram as well. Now, what are some of the implications of this? Well, he was a foreigner. He said that about himself. And what that means is that even though Abram walked in the land of Canaan, and he saw Canaanites on every side, although he was in the land of Canaan, he was not of the Canaanites. That is, he did not belong to that people. His citizenship was elsewhere. He did not have the same citizenship status as those Canaanites that were all around him. Ultimately, as with us, his citizenship was in heaven with the Lord Jesus. The fact that he was a pilgrim and a stranger means that he was passing through. He was on his way to somewhere better. 
That's what a pilgrim does. He's just, he's just passing through. He doesn't mean to make this earth his home, but he's looking for a better country. And that country, as Hebrews says, is a heavenly country for us. Now, he sojourned in the midst of the Canaanites. And there's that, that marker there at the end of verse 6. Maybe it catches us by surprise somewhat. And the Canaanite was then in the land. There it is. The Canaanite was then in the land. Now, who were these Canaanites amongst whom Abram sojourned and walked? Well, they were descendants of Canaan, whom Noah cursed uh, after they left the ark. We learn about the Canaanites in Genesis chapter 10 where we are given a table of the different families and tribes of the Canaanites. And that people migrated to the area around the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, and the Dead Sea. So that's the Canaanites from an ethnic perspective. But perhaps more importantly for us, who were the Canaanites religiously and morally? And now think about all of the time that you read about the Canaanites in the Old Testament and the kind of things that they were doing. The Canaanites were a terribly idolatrous and an immoral people. In fact, their very religion incorporated immorality. They made it a part of their very worship. Terribly idolatrous and immoral group, the Canaanites, as a whole. In the midst of these people... Abram walked and sojourned as a pilgrim. Now imagine that. Here is this Shemite who's just come all the way from Ur and then through Haran, and now here he is in Canaan, in Canaan amongst these descendants of Ham all around him. Now you can imagine that Abram was a noticeably different kind of guy. In fact, you wonder if the Canaanites did not kind of stare with surprise. Who's this guy that just is rolling into town with his servants and with all of his possessions? Abram looked different. He was a Shemite. He was descended from Shem and not from Ham, as were the Canaanites. He probably had a different dialect. Same root language, but a, even as you can tell if a man is from Brooklyn versus a man who's from Kentucky, Abraham probably had a different dialect. Abraham had tremendously different practices. And the Canaanites observing Abram's conversation and observing the things that he did had to have been filled with uh, puzzlement and surprise. Why does this man do things so differently than the way that we do? Religiously, Abram and the Canaanites could not be farther apart. Here are the Canaanites who worship all manner of idols with a, a filthy worship. Here is Abram who worships, who worships the one true God. No idols, no graven images. The Canaanites probably thought, where, where are this man's idols? Where are his images, his statutes? Why does Abram pray the way he does? What's he doing? Where's his God? Abram, as a pilgrim and a stranger, he was a foreigner, and everyone knew it. And it's probable that there was even a level of hostility um, between Abram and the Canaanites. Now we know from later passages in Genesis that there were, there were some Canaanites at least who had respect for Abram, like Ephron the Hittite who sold Abram the piece of land for Sarah's cave. But you can imagine that there were not a few Canaanites who could not stand Abram because Abram's conversation, his walk and his life, his religion was at odds with their own religion. And Abraham's very worship of God exposed the idolatry and the vanity of the idols of the Canaanites. Now, people do not take kindly when you expose something that they are doing as vain and false and idolatrous. Abraham repudiated all of that. And so if we had to summarize, we could say this. The Canaanites here were the world for Abram. The world now understood in New Testament terms. The realm of the wicked, the spirit and the culture of this age. We talk about the world. Well, Abram had the world as well. And he was in the world trafficking 
amongst the Canaanites, even having transactions with the Canaanites, but he was not of this world. His citizenship was different. It was elsewhere, and everyone knew it. Or to put it another way, Abraham had to walk the antithesis just as much as we have to walk the antithesis today as well. Now all of this has a ready application for us because we too are pilgrims and strangers passing through this life on the way to a better place and on the way to a better country. The proof of that is in a passage like 1 Peter 2 verse 11 where the apostle beseeches us as pilgrims and strangers. And he's speaking to the Christian Gentiles scattered about the world and he says, you are pilgrims and strangers. And even though this one might be from Bithynia and this one over here might be from another place in Asia Minor, you're a pilgrim and you're a stranger. Why is that? Well, we've been redeemed. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by that redemption, our citizenship status has changed. Legally speaking, from a spiritual perspective, we're not citizens of this world anymore. We don't belong to the this world, this present evil age. Rather, God redeemed us from that transferred our citizenship into the kingdom of heaven by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we are here in this life trafficking through pilgrims and strangers. Our home is in heaven. That's where our inheritance is. That's where our greatest possessions are, the spiritual riches and heavenly places. And so although we are in the world, we are not of the world, spiritually speaking. Now, as pilgrims and strangers, we ourselves are noticeably different. The world knows, can tell, when they see a Christian. This man's language is different. Not now the fact that he speaks English, but spiritually, this man speaks the things of God. They hear things come from his mouth that they have not heard anywhere else. His language, his dialect, as it were, is different. Not only that, his conversation, his walk, and his life in this world is different. And they see that. And like the Canaanites, they wonder, who is this man? Where is he from? And where is he going? Holiness and righteousness of life, the new godly life of which we heard with confession of faith, second question. That's a, that's a life, that's a conversation that is radically different and other in comparison with the conversation of this world in which we live. And then our religion, our worship is different. No idols, no bowing down to graven images, no bowing down to the entertainment and the filth and the things of this life, but a bowing down unto the one true and living God. Noticeably different. With Abram, we confess this about ourselves. We say, I am a pilgrim and a stranger here. I'm a sojourner. My home is not here on this earth. My home is in heaven. It's a better place. Dylan, that's what you've just done this evening. You've confessed that publicly before us all, before the world, as it were. I don't belong here. I'm here. I live here. God calls me to live here. But my citizenship is in heaven. And I'm on my way to a better country that is in heavenly one. Now that's the confession that we all make as children of God and as Christians. We take our stand with God. We are of the party of the living God over and against the wicked and the hostile world. We have God's standard, the standard of Jesus Christ which we bear in this present evil age. Now the world will try to make you ashamed of that. The world will do everything they can to muzzle the mouth of those who confess the name Jesus. They want nothing to do with it. They want nothing to do with that name. They want nothing to do with that life and that conversation. But now God calls us to live as pilgrims and strangers. And I dare say we do not always live as we ought as pilgrims and strangers because our flesh yearns to sink its roots so deeply into this soil of this earth. 
But now God says, no, you're a stranger, you're a pilgrim. I bought you, you're mine, your citizenship is in heaven, and now you live as a pilgrim and as a stranger. And that means that we live antithetically, we live differently than the world through which we pass. If no one suspects that there's anything different about us, if as we live and move in this world, no one imagines for a moment that we're Christians, and that there's nothing different about us as compared with the ungodly and the spirit of this age and the culture in which we live, then there's a problem. Everyone in town, when Abram walked through, knew something about Abram, that this, was, this man is different. He's from somewhere else. He doesn't do the things that we do. His life is, is completely opposed to the so many things that we, that we do. Now, there's a lesson for us as well. We should stick out in this world as pilgrims and strangers as an American sticks out in Germany or whatever illustration you would prefer. Sticking out like a sore thumb, as it were. Because this name which we confess and this life which we live, a holy and righteous life, is a somewhat different life than this present evil age. And further, we, we ought to let this world be strange to us. So we are strange to the world. The world is strange and foreign to us. That means that so much of the culture which we see around us, so much of the spirit of this age which manifests itself in so many different ways, that's, that's foreign to us. We, we have no business with that. We are citizens of a different country. And we live as pilgrims and strangers. Now there will be persecution. There will be mockery. Even from an earthly perspective, when a foreigner shows up in someone else's town, there's usually some kind of tension there, some kind of rubbing of the shoulders, and there's friction, and people don't like it that there's this man here from a different place who's passing through their own land. Again, with Abram, likely the case that there was that kind of hostility and friction. That'll be the same for us as well as we live and move in this world. People will not like it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. And they'll do what they can to put a stop to it. If that means absorbing us and trying to uh, mix in with us so that the difference is non-existent, or if that means uh, more overt forms of persecution, that's what's going to happen. Now Abram, Father Abram, he sojourned by faith in God's promise. Important for us as well as we sojourn here below. This matter of sojourning by faith in God's promise is evident from Genesis chapter 12. We're going to consider that promise in verse 7, unto thy seed will I give this land. Well, the fact that Abram right after that built an altar and began to worship God there really is an expression of Abram's faith in that promise which God gave him. But the fact that Abram sojourned by faith in God's promise is evident explicitly in Hebrews chapter 11, which we read. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise. Now that promise is significant. But before we consider the promise itself, notice what led up to the promise. And in the first place, God's, we have that marker at the end of verse 6 that the Canaanite was then in the land. Now that expression there is not just some kind of random insertion. The inspired Moses here, penning these words that were delivered to him, he gives us that marker in connection with what was about to happen. In the next verse, God is going to give Abram this promise of the land the land that was currently inhabited and possessed by the Canaanites. So that expression at the end of verse 6 puts us on alert with regard to that promise which was coming. And just in general, we're going to be coming across a lot of promises here in these chapters in Genesis. But the promises that God gives to Abram never just come out of the blue. 
They never just randomly take place, but they always come in connection with the life and with the experience of Abram, whom God promises. And now think of Abram. Put yourself in his shoes. Here he is passing through Canaan. He's got Canaanites glowering at him, puzzled about him, no permanent resting home, the Canaanites on every side. God recognizing that place in Abram's life and his need of this promise comes with the promise, unto thy seed will I give this land. But he did not just say this to Abram. He appeared and said it to Abram. Notice that expression at verse 7. And the Lord appeared unto Abram. That too is a significant detail. We'll see these appearances happen not only with Abram, but also with Isaac and Jacob who follow. These appearances were what theology calls theophanies. That is, visible manifestations of God to his people. In some way, God visibly manifested himself to Abram to deliver this promise. Now, what must that have been like? Well, when we consider some of the other passages where we read of these appearances, you have Genesis 17, verse 1, where God appeared to Abram and talked with him. And that gives you the image of a man speaking with a man. You have the appearance to Abram in Genesis 18, where you have three men coming to Abram's tent, one of whom was a visible manifestation of God. So there you have an appearance where God even took upon himself the form of a man to speak with Abram. From another passage in the history of Jacob, we read that after God appeared to Jacob, we read that the Lord went up, which teaches us that these appearances, perhaps it was a coming down from heaven in a way, manifesting of God, and then a going up again into heaven. So there's a little bit of the data when it comes to these appearances. We don't know exactly what it looked like here in Genesis chapter 12. Was it in the form of a man? Abram speaking uh, with another man, but who was no mere man, but God himself? Something to think about. But imagine now the comfort. Just the appearance of the Lord to Abram, what kind of comfort that must have been for him. Maybe Abram was tempted to think that he was all alone. This stranger, he had his servants, of course, but really he was alone in this land of Canaan with his servants. The temptations, that he, the, the fears and anxieties that he might have had looking around at the land. The kind of unsettled disposition that a man has when he's not at home and is a stranger to the place wherein he is. But then God appears unto Abram, makes himself known unto Abram, visibly manifests himself to Abram. And that meant comfort for Abram. Because it meant that God had not forgotten about him. It meant that God was with him, watching over him, holding him in his hand, leading him and guiding him in the way in which he should go. God was with him. And that was comfort. Not only that, God gives him this tremendous promise unto thy seed, will I give this land. To your children, Abram, I'll give you the very land you see around you, the soil that you're walking on. It will be yours. It will be your children's one day. This was the land promise. If we were Jews in the Old Testament, this promise had such a tremendous significance This was a defining promise. The whole history of Israel to follow led towards and culminated in Israel inheriting and possessing the land of Canaan. And it begins here with Abram in Genesis 12. At this point in sacred history, Canaan becomes the promised land. For this promise will be passed on to Isaac. This promise of Canaan would be passed on to Jacob. Jacob would pass it on to his children. Joseph would tell his brethren on his deathbed, God's going to fulfill this promise. You're going to go there. That's what he said. Make sure you bring my bones. 
And God realized this promise in the deep and the tremendous way of the bondage in Egypt and the exodus and the passing through the Red Sea and his preservation through the wilderness and the mighty conquering of Joshua until at last Abram's seed inherited and possessed the promised land. Abram would never possess it. He would never have a square foot, as it were, to call home. He lived by faith in the promise, and he sojourned by faith in that promise. And yet, even though he must needs be a stranger and a pilgrim in this life, he had a claim to that land. He had a right by promise to the land of Canaan. So even though he was a stranger and the Canaanites then dwelt in the land, Abraham was convinced the land was his. One day he would receive it in his children. His children? What children? Abram didn't have any children. Abram was getting on in age. His wife was getting on in age as well. Her womb was barren. And yet God talks about his children? Abram must have wondered about that. We don't read about it here, but later, especially in Genesis 15, you see that Abram, he wondered about it. How are these things going to happen? All these promises that have to do with my seed if I don't have any seed. But from God's perspective and in God's eyes, Abram's children were as sure as God himself. And therefore, already with this promise, God says unto your children, Abram. Now he believed this promise, and he sojourned in the land of Canaan convinced of this promise. That's the outstanding testimony of Hebrews chapter 11. For by faith he sojourned in the land of promise. And you see that faith expressing itself by the very fact that he stayed in Canaan. Abraham had opportunity of plenty to go back home, to go back to Haran, or to go even farther back to Ur of Chaldees. But he stayed put, and he was a pilgrim there in Canaan. And then Isaac... Uh, inherited the, the, this promise. And Isaac remained a pilgrim. And then Jacob remained a pilgrim. Why? Because they believed that one day they would inherit and possess this land. And until that day, they would be a pilgrim and a stranger. But Abram's faith and the faith of the patriarchs extended farther and they were lifted up higher than the material, physical dirt and land of Canaan. This is an important point. Because as Hebrews teaches us, they looked for a heavenly country, for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's astounding that these Old Testament patriarchs, thousands of years before they would, these things would, these promises would or essentially the promise of Christ and the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. Although they lived so far back from these things, yet already in Canaan, they lifted up their spiritual eyes to heaven. That's the testimony of Hebrews chapter 11. We've already quoted some of those verses. Verse 10 reads this way, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham had never seen foundations before. It was tents and tabernacles. He didn't have the, the concrete slabs that you have underneath your homes. There was no foundation for him. He had to pound stakes in the ground and then take those stakes up and get on the move again. But he looked for that city which hath foundations. That is, a permanent city. A city that would remain. A, a city of stability where he could dwell forever. Never more a pilgrim and a stranger, but finally at last at home. And that was heaven. Hebrews 11 speaks of heaven there. Verses 13 through 16, we read that these patriarchs they looked for a far better country that is an heavenly one. And that word country is a dear word because it means fatherland. It means a place to call one's own, one's own native place. 
Hebrews tells us that that native place, that fatherland to which Abram looked, was not the physical land of Canaan, but beyond that to heaven itself. And the significance of that is this. Even for God's Old Testament people, it was not about the carnal, material, physical things that they could get their hands on and, and grasp with their physical eyes and their physical hands, but the same spiritual realities and promises which we have as the New Testament people of God, the same was the case for Abram and for those who followed them. Now that earthly Canaan that God promised Abram was a type of heaven. Think about what it meant for Israel, the prospect of one day at long last possessing Canaan. What that day meant for Israel was that they would be able to sink their roots deep into that soil. They would be able to build houses. They would be able to stay put. The pilgrimage would be over. The battle and the friction and the war with the Canaanites would be at long last ended. They would be home at last. Home with God. That was Canaan for Israel. And that's what Abram looked forward to as well. But now that's just a type and a picture of a far greater Canaan and a far greater country that is heavenly. Heaven for us, that home where our citizenship even now is, what does that mean for us? When we get to heaven, it means that our pilgrimage will be over. It means that our war with the ungodly and with the devil and with our own flesh will finally be ended. It means that we will be home with God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, world without end. Heaven means that we'll be able to lay aside our pilgrim's staff, take off our pilgrim's shoes, and run through the lush grass of that new heavens and the new earth, singing the praises of God, delighting to be home after this wearisome and arduous pilgrimage here below. Heaven is the country that we seek. We too must live and sojourn as pilgrims here below by faith and that promise of heaven which God has set before us. That matter of faith here, it's not easy to be a pilgrim in this life. It's not going to be easy for any one of us. It's not going to be easy for you, Dylan, a pilgrim and a stranger here below. As we've already seen, there will be mockery, there will be trials, there will be tears, there will be pain, there will be hardship, there will be the valleys through which we must walk, there will be the temptations on every side. It's not easy to be a pilgrim. It means that we have to relinquish our hold on the things of this life. We have to give up this world and this life as being our home, and that's not easy for us according to the flesh. Who wants to be a pilgrim, a stranger, foreign to those around him, not belonging to the very place where are his feet? There were trials for Abram as well as we will see. As we will see. Think about the pilgrim at college, the Christian college student, what it's like for him to be different, to be a Christian, with the world around him, tempting him, mocking him, doing everything they can to undermine his faith and to swallow him up in worldliness. But he's a pilgrim and he's a stranger. He doesn't belong here. He's going to a better country that is heavenly. It's not easy to be an exile and an outcast, to be trodden upon and spit upon as those who don't belong here and as those who have no part with the business and the people of the world, the wicked world. But that's when that matter of the promise of God, the promise that He has a heavenly country for us to which we are walking, the promise of Canaan, not now the land of Palestine over the Atlantic Ocean, but now our heavenly promised land. That's what pushes us forward. That promise motivates us to take the next step on our pilgrim's path. 
What keeps any pilgrim going? What keeps any pilgrim going, especially in those moments of hardship, when the road gets tough, when there's pain? What keeps him going? Why take the next step forward when he can just turn back and be home here in this life and in this world? Why would Abram not return to Haran and enjoy his relatives and his possessions there? Why would the pilgrims crossing over uh, the water so many years ago, why would they keep going to America when half of their population was dying and they were starving? What keeps a pilgrim going? And it's the promise of better things and a better country on the other side. It's the promise of heaven that pushes us forward when there will be no more tears and our warfare will be finished and the victory will be completely ours. That's what keeps us going when the road gets tough. And when being a Christian is the most painful and unenviable thing in the world. But we go forward because we seek a far better country that is heavenly. Believe that promise. Trust in that promise. When everything around you that you can see seems to convey the exact opposite impression, believe that promise of God. We seek a far better country that is heavenly. No minor aspect of Abram's pilgrimage are those details that we read in Genesis 12 that he built these altars and that he called upon the name of the Lord. At first, those appear to be somewhat incidental details. Built at an altar, removed his tent, went somewhere else, built another altar, kept going on his way. So you have Abram, pilgrim through Canaan, leaving a trail of altars behind him. And then this matter that he called upon the name of the Lord there. And yet, from those details, we derive some important application as regards being a pilgrim and being a stranger here below. Let's consider what this meant for Abram. It's in the first place those altars that he built. Perhaps built out of stone, piled up, on which he would bind an animal, sacrifice that animal, offer the animal up unto God. An altar. Where do you think he learned where to make that altar and how to make that altar? Well, this matter of the altar was passed down from generation to generation. And now Abram following in the footsteps of his spiritual and physical forefathers, builds this altar. Now the importance of that is because there was a great gospel message that was associated with these altars. The fact that an altar must be built and that an animal must be sacrificed conveyed to the sacrificer that we are sinners. That we have no right of ourselves to communion and fellowship with God. And that for there to be communion, there must be bloodshed. There must be satisfaction by a substitute reconciling us to God, making way for communion with Him. So that was the gospel message that was taught the patriarchs, even with the altar. But the significance of this altar here with respect to Abram's pilgrimage is that this was a time of worshipful communion with God in heaven. This was a time here at this altar and in the altars following where Abram could, as it were, press the pause button on his pilgrimage and in a special way lift up his heart unto God and be near him in uh, a peculiar way. Here at this altar, Abram would pray to God. He would worship God. He would give God his, his thanksgiving and his gratitude, the God of his salvation, who watched over him and who cared for him. Or another way to look at it, this altar was, as it were, a bridge between heaven and earth, in and through Jesus Christ. God in heaven, Abram on earth, but Abram by that altar for Jesus' sake, lifting his heart up unto God. And as it were, being in heaven, or at least having a foretaste of that on his pilgrim's journey. But he didn't just build altars. We read at the end of verse 8 that he called upon the name of the Lord. And that too is significant. What that calling upon included, among other things, was prayer, praise, thanksgiving, 
worship, all of these things, calling upon the name of the Lord. And it's likely that there was even a corporate aspect to this calling upon God's name. Early, early, early in Genesis, when we read that men began to call upon the name of the Lord, uh, so many generations after Adam, there's a corporate aspect that is taught there. And here as well, Abram in Canaan, he was not alone by himself, but he had a, a, quite a troop behind him. 318 servants, we learn from Genesis 14, 14. And then Sarah. So as one commentator puts it, there, this was like a little church gathering together at this altar, calling upon the name of the Lord. They had church there on their pilgrim's journey. Now the significance of this, as well as with the altar, is it teaches us that while Abram sojourned as a pilgrim, he had that God-word perspective, that faith-looking-to-God perspective as a pilgrim. He didn't just look at the road in front of him and all the toil and weariness and pain that it will bring. He didn't just look around him at the Canaanites on every side, but he lifted his eyes up unto God with a Godward perspective. Now that is a field guide for us as pilgrims and strangers who have this, our pilgrimage, set before us. Abram now has entered into his rest. Here we are now in Abram's footsteps, pilgrims and strangers seeking a far better country. Abram teaches us the manner of our pilgrimage. Namely, that we not walk around with our heads buried in the sand, only looking at the things against us and the problems and the trials that we must experience, but lifting our eyes up unto God by faith and having that Godward perspective in our life. Now, this is true uh, on a personal level, as pilgrims personally. You could put it this way. Abram did his devotions as he walked and as he sojourned in Canaan. And to that, God calls us to do our devotions, this calling upon the name of the Lord. Dylan, that's the case now. It has been the case for you your whole life. And now, as a publicly confessing member of the church, devotions. A simple thing. We, we hear it all the time, but here it is with Father Abram. Now, what does that include? Well, it includes prayer. Prayer is, as it were, the breath of faith, an expression of faith. Prayer implies and indicates dependence upon God, trust in God. Now, if we're going about on our journey, hardly ever praying, what does that say about us as pilgrims? Well, it says that we're not trusting in God as we ought. It likely means that we're trusting in ourselves and depending upon ourselves, and that's no good for a pilgrim here below in this life. Devotions include reading the Scriptures, the Word of God. We don't have the luxury, if you want to call it that, of God appearing to us in a visible manifestation, leading us and guiding us in the way that we should go. And yet, Second Peter tells us that we ought not to think of our case as being any less because we have the whole scriptures, this whole revelation of God to lead us and to guide us on our way here below. Those scriptures as they are read, those scriptures as they are preached. But there's also a corporate aspect to our sojourn here below as pilgrims because we are not alone. Here we all are as pilgrims and strangers gathered together, fellow citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We don't go through life alone. On the one hand, because we have God our Father ever with us, but now because we have each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And an important aspect of this kind of Godward pilgrimage through life is our public gathering together as fellow pilgrims. If a pilgrim willfully keeps himself from the worship of God's name, the corporate public worship of God's name, that pilgrim is in a bad way. That pilgrim is isolated. He is adrift from the very refuge and shelter which God gives us as the church of Jesus Christ. He's vulnerable. 
He's, he's endangered by being alone. But positively, the weekly Sabbath, almost like Abram's altars, which he built here, there, and in other places, the weekly Sabbath affords us a time as the body of Christ to press the pause button on our pilgrimage and to lift our hearts up to heaven for a moment as the people of God in a special way to worship God, to be spiritually refreshed and recharged by song and by prayer and by word for the journey ahead. And even as Abram's altar, the smoke of that offering ascended up into heaven. Well, that's what goes on in church as well. We, we draw up together into heaven to taste for a moment, to have a foretaste of the heavenly joys and the bliss that God has in store for us. Think about the church steeple. We don't have one here in this gym. We thank God for having a building in which to worship. The church steeple ascends up into heaven, as it were, earth reaching up, the people of God reaching up to their God and their Father. Well, that's what we do. Not only in our private devotions and in our personal lives, but now in a special way as the people of God, ascending up, peering into that heaven and into that Canaan which God has in store for us. And so we sojourn with this calling upon the name of the Lord until that day when we arrive and we're there and we walk through the gates and we lay aside our staff and we praise the Lord Jesus Christ and bow down before Him the day when we at last will be home in the most perfect and complete way imaginable. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for this word and for the tremendous teaching and application which Thou dost give unto us by it, applied unto our hearts. Remind us of our citizenship in heaven. Renew us in this our pilgrim's journey. And as we look at the week ahead, Father, cause us to trust in Thee to believe thy promise to usward and to sojourn by faith, looking up unto thee and unto thy Son, Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, until we with the church of all ages shall at long last arrive, and we shall be with thee in heaven through thy Son, Jesus Christ, to dwell in forever with permanency and security, that bliss and that joy which thou hast set before us. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.